Hello, and you're very welcome to Mind You, where I dive into how different people use different ways to self-care. I'm Brian Barnes from Brian Barnes Wellbeing, where I partner with people to create unique well-being solutions. Today, I'm delighted to be talking to Fiend O'Neillon, also known as the Holistic Gardener. Fiend has a huge passion for serving and minding others through his work as an author, a broadcaster, and a columnist with a background in medical botany, nutritional science, horticultural therapy, mindfulness, and CBT counseling. Wow, you're a busy man, Fian, and thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me on, Brian. Thanks, man. You're so welcome. And Fian, can you start off by telling me a bit about yourself and how you got to here? Yeah, so here is, again, I don't know if it's, you know, a, a story of two labours or a tale of two loves, but kind of what I do, I, I it's, Pretty much on one hand, I do social and therapeutic horticulture, which includes all the medicinal botany stuff. It's it's using the garden either as a, a physical tool to deal with physical injuries, you know, like this does planting techniques and uh, chores that you can do in the garden that can improve pinch force post-stroke or can work out sciatica complications or loosen up um, musculoskeletal problems so the garden can be a kind of physical therapy but the garden can also be a psychological therapy so say for example you know a lot of people who would be dealing with anxiety well you know there's a there's a hyper vigilance there which means there's a there's a constant flush of cortisol through the system and you know there's a thing and I'll, I'll probably get into a little bit more later but the color green dissipates cortisol out of the system, lowers your, your intensity of stress molecules. So if I have somebody in the garden who's dealing with anxiety, even if I'm just getting them to cut the lawn or trim a, a hedge, that looking at green for that half an hour is going to medicate them into a much, much better emotional state. If I have somebody with depression in the garden, again, there can be issues there with self-expression, with creativity, with motivation. So maybe what you want to lean into there is making a hanging basket or a container, uh, working with colors that can lift and elevate the mood, working with fragrances that can lift and elevate the mood and getting them to have an achievement award, another dopamine hit, another flush of serotonin, another boost. So for me, I'm using the garden as a therapeutic tool. And that's before we even get into maybe what the herbal teas are or what nutritional foods you can grow. Um, and then on the other side of it, there's the, the kind of communication work, which is, you know, writing the books, doing the articles, bits of TV and radio. And I kind of think of, you know, the first part of it being in the garden is kind of, you know, that's a prayer, you know, and the other side of it is the kind of, evangelicalizing i'm not pronouncing that correctly but you know that that going out and and um kind of celebrating the the validated science behind social and therapeutic horticulture behind medicinal botany behind natural cures behind maybe taking one step away from chemical use in the garden or chemical use on ourselves and looking at what way our ancestors may have coped with the vicissitudes of life. So kind of how I do that is summertime, 
and winter time. And it's it's kind of, you know, I'm after mentioning church, but I kind of, the way I look at it, I break it down on the old druidical lines of the dark half of the year and the bright half of the year. So the dark half of the year would, would start in around Salem, Halloween. And it's, you know, the day is, is too dark and too cold and probably too wet to be gardening. So we generally park all the, the gardening stuff, the horticultural therapy stuff stops. And that leaves me free then to, to spend the winter months, the dark half of the year, writing. I'll write all my articles for the next year. I'll, I'll get stuck into a book. If there's bits of telly and radio, I'll do that. Um, but that's where I'm fully engrossed in learning about whatever it is I'm writing about. You know, even though I might have lived it for the last 20 or 30 years, there's still more to learn. And you try to absorb as much of it as you can. And then distill that down into useful, helpful nuggets that whoever is reading the article or reading the book are going to benefit the most from it. And then when it comes back to summertime, again, I'm, I'm out, I'm in the garden, I'm doing all the hands-on stuff, you know, and, and being getting what, there. What kind of, what, what got you into gardening? What was, well, this what... Is, yeah. So the getting there was that, you know, my dad was a gardener. So my dad liked, you know, to have kind of borders and roses and, you know, bedding plants and that sort of stuff. So from the time I was a child, I would have helped him fill the watering can or put the bedding out. Um, so for me, growing up, gardening was just what what humans did. Do you know, I didn't know any different. And even by the time I got to be a teenager, when my mate's chores was to put out the rubbish bins or paint the back gate, mine was to plant the bulbs or prune the roses. So the gardening skills just seeped in because it was what I knew. You know, gardening programs would be on the television, garden books and magazines would be lying around the house. So it was just... It, it was within the family and then within the family, you know, because I was good at it, I'd be kind of farmed out to kind of cut one of my auntie's lawns or, you know, plant a border up for an uncle or, you know, and I started to kind of get pocket money from that and I could go buy records and books and that sort of stuff. So, you know, even before it became a, a passion and a pastime, it was just there as, you know, what we done. And my grandfather, you know, he, he was more of a kind of a, a GIYer, you know. He he would be more about, you know, how many gooseberries and strawberries did we get or, yeah. you know, did those tomatoes ever ripen? So he only had a tiny patch. I mean, we, we live in Dublin. He had a small patch, but he, he packed it in. He was, you know, he was doing that square foot gardening long before somebody ever came up with the phrase of it, you know. Yeah. But what he used to do was he used to collect me, you know, from the time I was like three, four, five, six. And he'd bring me off on walks. And the walks would be kind of, I guess, nature walks. It would, we, we lived between the two canals. So he would bring me up and down one of the canals on a walk and he would he would tell me the name of the tree that we were looking at. He would tell me the bird singing in the tree, maybe an interesting fact about it, uh, the insect that landed on the plant, what the plant was, if he had a story about the plant, the fish in the canal, you know, whether it was perch or rudd, which ones were edible, which ones weren't. Sometimes you might go into Stevens Green or up to the Phoenix Park. So for me, being outside, being in nature, uh, on one hand, it was about knowledge acquisition. You know, that when you're there, you're absorbing information, you're learning about stuff, you're reading the landscape, you're looking at the clouds to figure out, do we need to get home quick or is it going to be sunny for the rest of the day? It's like 
ancient survival skills, you know, kind of woven into just a walk with your granddad. But it was also that thing of like, you know, that being out in that space with him, like that's love, you know, and and love is healing. So I had always associated outdoors with love and healing and kind of how, how I came into the, the horticultural therapy stuff is again, this thing of like anybody who's in the healing sphere is somebody who was broken at some point and learned how to put the jigsaw pieces back and is now trying to pass it on to other people. For me, I was more interested in art. And when I left school, I enrolled in art college and I was, you know, screen printing t-shirts and posters for local bands and writing plays. And, you know, I wanted to be a painter and a filmmaker and that all stopped because I had a road traffic accident, which took two years big chunk of two years out of my life with lots of physiotherapy, uh, lots of pain management, pain medication, uh, lots of counseling just to, you know, get my head around it and get back on track. And I found that when I was, I had to move back into it with my mom and dad. And I found that, you know, when I was in the garden, just sitting out the back garden, even on a bench that the, the kind of, the pains and tinglings down the left-hand side of my body where there had been a, a lot of kind of nerve damage done, that dissipated when I was in the garden. It just disappeared. I didn't notice it so much. So I started to kind of twig that this thing of being in the outdoor space in nature was was kind of was good for me, was maybe even better for me than going to the counseling session. And again, I started to, because I just have a curiosity, I started to read up about, you know, different aspects of it. And I found out about the Kaplans in America who are kind of treating patients by getting them to care for houseplants and stuff like that. And, you know, uh, nurturing the nurture drive in them. And that sped up their immune system and their recovery times and it benefited the psychological woes. And you know, I was reading about some of the forest gardens that were set up after World War One to keep the veterans kind of, occupied but also you know it it became a physical therapy for them and a psychological therapy for them and boosted self-esteem and helped them overcome post-traumatic stress disorder and that sort of stuff so all of the kind of crappy stuff I was going through with this kind of knock to my life I found solace in the garden so I decided right I'm not gonna you know this thing of art and all of that's a little bit self-indulgent maybe I just should live the kind of simple life and just just be a gardener so I applied for a couple of jobs um, to be a gardener and I got a job as a gardener. But again, this thing, whether it's synchronicity or coincidence or whatever, it turned out I got a, a job in a residential care center. And a lot of the people who were there would have had similar accidents to me, but they were paraplegic now. You know, they, they came out of it well worse off than I had. So apart from the life lesson in that, I found that, again, some of the people would be you know, they might not have a lot of visitors or when they did have a visitor, they were kind of stuck in the common room. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice if there was spaces on the grounds that they could come and have a bit of privacy with family or guests or whatever. So I started creating little gardens in the space, putting in wheelchair accessible kind of pavements and then putting an arbor in or a pergola in or, you know, uh, an aromatherapeutic um, plant pots. And then there was interest in, in that happening with the, the, the residents. So then I started putting in a view from every window. And, you know, if you couldn't come out, if you were, you know, bed bound and you didn't leave the room, well, then at least couldn't you have a hanging basket or a container that was maybe planted up 
with your county colours, you know, or your football team colours, you know, and that was engaging people in, you know, what was in the window, what was outside the window, what was outdoors and cutting flowers for the table and again, growing herbal teas and all of that. And we got a polytunnel and we set up a gardening club and that came to the attention of a couple of different agencies, including the kind of the, the Eastern Health Board, now the HSC, um, who were interested in me kind of training their staff and how to do similar things in their facilities. So before you knew it, I went from being a gardener to all of a sudden in the sphere of social and therapeutic horticulture. And it wasn't really called that at the time. It was called kind of outreach horticulture. That was the best we could, we could kind of find for it. And then I joined the American Association of Horticultural Therapists just because I needed to train myself up so as I could do this stuff so that places could get the insurance to, to have me on site. And I went off and I, you know, I, I studied officially aromatherapy. I would have read about it, you know, for years, but I went and I got all of the kind of certs and looked at color therapy and all of the holistic side of stuff. And then I found I was working with people where it wasn't just um, physical complications, that the mental complications were there. And I thought, okay, I need to know how to handle this sort of stuff. So I went back and I trained in kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, addiction studies, mindfulness facilitation, that sort of stuff, and tried to bring that into the garden. So while, you know, it's great to be able to get out and make a garden of herbal teas and somebody can figure out what the medication here is going to help them with their migraine or their sciatica or their arthritis. Um, it was also good to be able to bring in kind of Tai Chi in the garden or barefoot meditations, you know, um, banging a gong, hugging a tree, all of that sort of stuff. It was also good to be able to bring in kind of aspects of um, psychological therapies in terms of like, you know, building self-esteem and, and knowing how to handle somebody if they were feeling suicidal, you know. Now, I have my own history with mental health, so, you know, I would be pretty clued into a lot of that, but I just felt I needed the academic side of it I needed to go back and study and learn and become proficient in this and kind of you know have all of the bases covered um and through all of that I ended up kind of giving talks you know to horticultural societies to kind of uh, students and from all that I got to do um gardens create gardens put gardens in that were therapeutic spaces and that got me to bloom and invited to do RHS shows and all of that then got me kind of attention as such. There was kind of column inches about the gardens I was writing. I was getting to kind of stand in front of a, a television camera or a, a microphone and, and explain what I was doing at these particular shows or events. And through all of that, that led to getting me to do a television series with Dermot O'Neill, the, the great Irish gardener, Lord of Mercy on him. Um, and I worked with him for a year on this this show about practical gardening skills. But we snuck in some of the stuff about the kind of therapeutic benefits of gardening. And then I ended up doing things like Ireland AM and the Today Show. And I'd go on and I'd do kind of herbalism slots or talking about the kind of the garden and the the, the benefits of it. You know, um, how it how it works to improve your psychology or your 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 physicalness. Um, and that brought me into the that whole sphere then of the communication side of it. So that's here, you know, that's that's where I am at, at the minute, you know. Wow. And um, 
what a journey, what a journey you've been on. And thank you for sharing that with me and for being so honest with me. And Fian, diving deeper into kind of how you mind others, like that toolkit that you have, that amazing toolkit, as I said, you know, like the horticultural therapy that you've added, the CBT and the mindfulness and your own, you know, kind of um, experience with mental health, like diving deeper into how you mind others. Let's say, you know, someone coming to you, with no knowledge of any kind of benefits of, you know, plants or horticulture, where do you start off and what's, what's a good kind of starting point for people if, you know, with no kind of knowledge of this? Yeah. Well, for me, it's look, you know, the fact that you're going to take up gardening or coming into the garden space. I mean, some of the stuff that I get is kind of social prescribing, you know, it's where the, the, the local GP or the local psychotherapist maybe recommending to somebody that they go volunteer on an allotment or in a community garden. So they know already when they get there that it's going to have some sort of benefit to them. But I explained that, look, when you're in the garden, and, and this is what has worked for me, you know, when I, when I first noticed it, when it took away my pain problems, never mind my psychological issues, that, you know, it's the distraction. You don't have to be your diagnosis. You don't have to be the prognosis. You don't have to be the person in recovery. You know, you don't have to be the person in recovery from drink or alcohol. You don't have to be the person who's dealing with the complication of how you're going to pay your bills next week or the fact that you may be between jobs at the moment or have specific life complications. That all goes out the window. You're in the garden. You know, you're planting bulbs, you're making planters. Enjoy it. You know, take it as a time out, take it as a pleasant pastime, a happy hobby. You know, it's something that you're going to do and you don't have to think about your problems. Yeah. And while you're here working with me over the weeks and months ahead, well, then if you want to work on your issues, we can work on your issues. And if that's a physical issue, I'll find the chores in the garden that's going to work on that particular part of the body. Or we'll grow the specific herbs that are going to, you know, be the medicine towards that in support with whatever medicines your doctor have you on. Um, and if it's the psychological stuff, you know, you'll find that that will just come as we're going along anyway, you know. So it's that thing that it's the distraction away from your woes and worries. But then as we get further into it, you know, I will talk with people about, you know, the, the evolutionary biology of it, you know. And it's, it's that thing that when we first became hominoids and stood upright, you know, and use their arms to gather, you know, you know, that's what we were doing there was we were reading the landscape. So when in the distance we seem green, you know, like if you think of us on the savannah and it's all very beige and gray and there's not much around, when you seem green in the distance, you know, the, 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 the caveman man, when you seem green in the distance, that green meant survival yeah. because it was a plant and a plant may give you shelter it may be edible it may be a medicine but a plant needs water to grow so if you get to that plant and dig you're going to find a water source yeah. so seeing green is very much hard word even into our modern brains as something that will again melt the cortisol in the system because you're going to survive you have this flood of positive endorphins and when you see it the body takes all the stress molecules out of way that can inhibit movement and action and motivation and it replaces them with the positive endorphins and the neurotransmitters that get you to be able to transverse 
the terrain in front of you between you and the green and get to the green and survive. So this is what I'm saying in the garden with all the greenery around. This is happening anyway. Your cortisol levels are dropped. You're getting more positive emotional responses to the nature that you're in. It's very primal. It's it's back to factory settings, you know. And then I'll talk about kind of the, the blue wavelength. So yeah. the blue wavelength is, you know, again, going back to evolutionary biology, you came out of the cave in the morning. The cave was dark. Dark put you to sleep and rest. You came out of that in the morning. You seen the blue wavelength in the blue daylight in the sunshine. First of all, that's your hit of uh, vitamin D. You know, your vitamin D is the precursor of serotonin. Serotonin is the happy hormone. So all of a sudden you're motivated. But the blue wavelength, you know, it pings the pituitary gland. It vibrates within the limbic region of the brain. There's a lot of neuroscience between how it really gets us into gear for being the hunter-gatherers, for going out and seizing the day, for grabbing life, for being motivated, for being your full potential. So this blue wavelength that we're getting in the garden is topping us up with the serotonin and topping us up with all of this positive psychology. And I, I think the problem with the kind of modern world as such is, you know, we're not agricultural workers. I mean, it's a long time since we were hunter-gatherers and going out pushing the mammoth off the cliff. But, like, we're not agricultural workers anymore. We're not outdoors, you know. We're, we're inside doing the tippy-tappy stuff. And yeah. we're under artificial lights. And the artificial lights, unless you've got a company that's went out and invested in daylight bulbs or you have daylight bulbs in your kitchen or your home, they operate on the red wavelength. And the red wavelength is what traditionally we would have encountered at dusk in the evening time. That causes a surge of melatonin to be released in the body. The melatonin is the sleep hormone. It encourages us to rest. It tires us out. It encourages, makes us hungry, wants us to eat. And with the full belly down, we fall asleep. So I think, you know, today when you get up in the morning and you switch the light on in your kitchen, you are preparing yourself to be tired, to reach for the sugary snacks, to need the 20 cups of coffee a day, to just be tired all day and fatigued and not really know why, because your brain is thinking, well, this is daylight. I should be happier. I should be more motivated. I should... Why am I in this slump? You know, and that thing when it gets to three o'clock and, you know, you see all the advertisers saying, oh, you know, have this you know, hugging a mug or, you know, eat this snack bar or drink this cup of coffee or, you know, get your, get your motivation. It's not that you've had a dip in energy reserves in terms of food. It's that you've had a colossal misalignment of natural daylight getting into your system. And, you know, we operate off the circadian rhythms. I mean, every, all life on the planet, plants open up in daylight, close at nighttime, humans the same, animals the same. You know, so it's this misalignment with your natural self. And that can lead into like with night nurses and stuff like that and shift workers. You see higher rates in various different conditions from cancer through to uh, arthritis and, you know, deep, deep complications and, and small complications. But your health is out of kilter Absolutely. when you're not obeying your circadian rhythms. And so the fact that somebody is with me and they're in the garden and they're getting that. Yeah. Well, that's putting them back on track. Because most people work indoors. Like most people work indoors. Um, you know, it's that nine to five, Monday to Friday, indoors, false lighting. And like I've seen research that says at least 85% of people are unhappy in their jobs. And I think that's a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your serotonin is your happy hormone. So how can you feel happy? How can you feel satisfied? 
you know, if that's missing. I mean, every drug for depression is based upon your serotonin receptors, yeah. you know, uh, making it last longer in your system. But sure, how is it getting into your system? Absolutely. You know, so this is the thing of like, you know, can we have more workplace gardens? You know, can we do like, okay, say something like houseplants, right? You can bring houseplants in, you can bring nature indoors and you'll get the greenery. And houseplants are fantastic because they're the opposite to static electricity. So again, all the dust particles that might be in the air affecting your respiratory system, which can strain you and tore you and fatigue you quicker, will fall to the floor and can be hoovered up or swept away. So there's a big push now with how indoor houseplants in office spaces and factories can improve productivity, but it's still not getting the worker out into daylight. And this is where the forest bathing thing came from in the 70s. I think it was now, I could be wrong, but I think it was the guy who ran Toyota. And the Japanese are brilliant for all of these kind of morning exercises and stuff like that to get the circulation going so that you'll go in and you'll be the most efficient person you can be in the day. But this guy, again, he was coming from kind of Shinto background and looking at kind of nature and how getting out into nature uh, was part of your cultural heritage. So he decided he was that his factory workers who seemed to be declining by the end of the week, um, that he was going to pick a day in the middle of the week and bring them out and get them into nature, let them go fishing, let them walk through a forest and get into the restorative power of nature. And turns out, yeah, that boosted their productivity the next day and for the rest of the week, you know. So there's this thing, I think you had a previous guest on who who might have been talking about kind of something similar, kind of hiking and how, you know, 10 minutes outside, you know, gives you 90 minutes worth of kind of an energy boost and all that sort of stuff. This is this is what, this is going back to forest bathing. And what's really interesting about forest bathing is it's popular now, go walk in a forest and, you know, get, get restored. It's all got to do with how soft fascination works. It's that your brain is switched on. You're paying attention to the terrain. You're reading the sky. You're being motivated by the green and the blue. Also, lots of trees give off volatile oils that are quite similar to cannabinoids. So subtly that's getting into our hair and onto our skin. It's decreasing pain receptors within the body, switching them off. It's encouraging, again, the release of endorphins and neuro, neuroephedrine and all that sort of stuff. So it's given us a great boost. But, you know, you go back to the old Irish sagas and after Cúchulainn had a war or a battle or whatever, he went and he sat in the forest. You know, he went and he sat in a stream. He sat in a stream in which biola grew. And biola is basically watercress. And watercress secretes into the water that it grows in zinc and magnesium. Now, zinc heals cuts and magnesium is absorbed into the skin and heals kind of muscles, uh, bruises, you know, sore, soreness and, and tension within the body. So, you know, this is as ancient as ancient. Absolutely. You know, that fact of going out into nature because we evolved in it. So clearly when we go back and we participate with it, it has a reaction up upon us. Absolutely. I actually, I remember listening to a podcast with, you know, your man, Blind Boy. Yeah. About a year ago. And he was talking about, he had done some research on, there's some uh, wells down in Curry and uh, ancient wells. And they found that there was lithium in the water. Yeah. Lithium is used now in psychiatry to, as a mood stabilizer. So, so, so yeah, so this is the thing. I, I think that well is Tubernigyalt, and and Gyalt mean Gyalt has got to do with the moon, but it's about being away with the moon. 
It's yeah. where, you know, in, in modern English, you get lunacy and lunatic from. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the gelt was the, was the kind of the, the madness. And, and there you go. You know, the people who were going on, who were drinking the water of that well, they were getting the, the, the right medicine required for it. And all the healing wells around Ireland have something similar going on with them, you know. And, you know, it may be that one well has a lot of calcium in it. So, but that's the well that since Christianity became whoever the patron saint of brittle bones is, you know, or it may have magnesium in it. And that's the saint of, you know, whoever calmed your stomach or calmed your nerves. But the interesting thing is, is that if we go back to some of the old Irish ways, the deosol, which is the how you walk around the well, is sunwise. You know, it's the clockwise way that you walk around the well and you walk around it in, in a particular pattern. Now, very often you're saying today you're saying a prayer. At one time you may have been saying a mantra or a, or a, a humming song. You'll be using the vibrations within your mouth and your body to energize yourself out of the condition that you were in. You were literally shaking up the body and making it more uh, health uh, receptive so you're walking with the sun you're completely connected into the sun and nature and the cycles of life you're drinking the water from the well you know you're imbibing nature you're bringing nature into yourself like it's 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 chemistry it's psychology but it's spirituality yeah. you know and that's the thing you know when we can connect with that that naturally comes i mean you you think of like you know the irish christian monks I mean, one of the things that they came up with was this thing of officinalis. So if you look at all the healing herbs out there, they all have officinalis on the end. Lavendula officinalis is lavender. Euphrasia officinalis is eyebright. Um, these were all the traditional medicines that were kept in the officia, which was the room at the back of the kind of monastery. And they were the official herbs. You got the official seal of approval when you went to the monk and he prescribed what you needed to get from the pharmacy. So the Irish monks brought this all around the world. Brilliant, you know. And Christianity really got interested in kind of health. If you look at all of the, you look at the alcoholic beverages that started out as being kind of herbal waters, you know, um, that were brewed by the monks. You know, and, and the nuns, and you look at the kind of the Trappist guys brewing the beer and keeping quiet, you know, they were they were onto something there. But again, at the start, that was about brewing herbs and what the herbs could be used. But then you look at the Zen tradition, you know, and raking the gravel, you know, just being outdoors. The, the, the Zen gardens being the, the kind of the microcosm of the macrocosm, and this little stone is 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 the mountain and and this raked gravel is the ocean and the waves in the ocean so you know all of this stuff has a spiritual nature i think a lot of okay a lot of the physical complications that we're dealing with in terms of pain in terms of you know mutations in cells and potentially cancers and that sort of stuff i think that can be that we're not in nature enough and by that, I mean, we're under the artificial lights, our body's under stress, our immune systems aren't working as well as they were. Yeah. We're eating convenience foods. We're not having time out or self-care the way we used to. There was a point in time, even where I talk about working in the dark half of the year and the bright half of the year, there were kind of switch off times where, okay, we don't hunt, hunt and gather now. We live off the stores. You know, okay, it's 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 in Volk now. This is the time for going out and celebrating. Okay, it's sound now. This is the time for get the harvest in. And you know, we 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 had laws and regulations that were part of the culture that kept us alive, kept us surviving. 
but that gave us this pro-social thing, gave us this spiritual aspect, part of a community. A lot of the people that I'm dealing with, you know, like I guess everybody throughout the pandemic got a taste of what social isolation is you know for a long long time the people that i would be getting into the garden who were dealing with a psychological issue felt isolated and disconnected and the garden even though it can be a lonely um or isolated activity and that it's just you and the weeds or you and the lawnmower or you you and the container um that connection in with it was enough so I'm fascinated by this thing of kind of um, social surrogacy. So, you know, there's, there's this thing where there's a lot of people walking around with two cups of coffee in their hand, you know, and you're thinking, how thirsty are you or how busy are you? You know, or how tired are you that you need two cups of coffee, right? But there is this thing where uh, psychologists have been looking at it. And the conclusion that they're coming to is that it's a form of social surrogacy. So you holding the hot cup of coffee in your hand is a replacement for holding the warm hand of your mother or your loved one or your granddad or whatever. So you're replacing this tenderness or intimacy with a commercial product. You know, now advertising hooks you on that. You know, look at all these ads about you spray the spray on and all of a sudden you're the you're the ideal mate, you know. Now, that comes from a time when humans used to actually sniff each other, you know, to see whether you did carry, you know, diabetes or whatever. So, okay, we both have diabetes. Well, maybe we shouldn't have progeny because they're more than likely going to have diabetes. Okay, this one doesn't have diabetes. I have diabetes, but there's a 50-50% chance that the next generation, you know, won't necessarily carry this genetic thing on with them. And that becomes today where, you know, everybody smells of chocolate or African spice or, you know, how do we know, (laughs) you know, how do we know each other, you know? So we're all just masked in some, you know, in some other, other aroma. We're all kind of just distracted and we're sold by the advertising, all of these different types of aspirations. And, you know, that's the pressure. This is this thing where, you know, it's spilt over more intensely into kind of the, the whole thing with FOMO with this fear of missing out and, you know, the social media things of people craving likes and all of that sort of stuff. So again, for me, when I get people into the garden, it's like, leave your phone away. It's the digital detox, you know? Um, I remember years ago, I, I wrote an article about digital detox and somebody contacted the editor and asked uh, if I'd be interested in turning her into an app. <laughs> you know, you know? <laughs> like... <laughs> that's not the point of it the point of it is not to have your phone you know and this thing where people are looking at their screens that your your the screen pings that receptor i was talking about in the pituitary so if you're looking at your screen late at night not only all day have you been under the red wavelength and being tired but just as you're going to bed you're looking at the screen that's pinging the wake up part of your brain you know and you're wondering why you have insomnia you know and then you're texting me at you know four o'clock in the morning going how do i get to sleep feeling you know the answer is turn the effing phone off exactly. you know rather, rather than the digital detox app just turn the fucking thing off turn it off turn it off you know and get outside and get a bit of nature now i know it's difficult because the modern world is the technology has always driven humans and the technology now is digital and wireless and stuck in front of a screen you know yeah i mean even that thing with the pandemic what did everybody do they binged watch netflix they 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 increased amazon's global wealth you know everything is ordered and we haven't let go of that 
you know, people are still, you know, they're ordering a coffee to their door and the coffee shop is, you know, 10 minutes walk away. Between that's what I wanted to ask you. So I was bringing this down to basics. Now, look at like, I suppose we've talked about, you know, like all the kind of horticultural therapy and the benefits of it. But let's say someone with no garden, no allotments, no kind of, you know, green space near them, you know, as in, because I've seen you talking about growing stuff in buckets and just having, um, you know, plants in the window. So basics, where, where should people start off? Pure basics with, with nothing, you know, kind of started up to date. Yeah, so like if you're living if you're living in an apartment and yeah. there's there's no way you can do anything like you don't even have a balcony. Get a, a house plant. In, a lot of people are in that situation, you know. Yeah, get a house plant. I mean, you know, having a house plant in the it's the opposite of static electricity. So all of the the modern technology that you have in the home is creating the EMF field, which is keeping the dust particles up in the air, which means you're breathing them in and out of your mouth and in your nose and getting them into your eyes. So all of this kind of tiredness and allergies that were that people are suffering from, even though they're not out in the world where there's pollen, they're getting it from the the detritus that's in their house. It's their own skin cells. It's their own dandruff. It's their pet hairs are all in their breathable atmosphere. A couple of houseplants knocks that right out drops all of the particles onto the floor. Having a houseplant is something then that you are going to nurture and take care of. It's another life form. It's also a hobby or a pastime. You might start collecting them, get an interest in them, read about them. It's taking you back towards nature and away from just purely, you know, being the consumer unit. You know, I, I worry about the future of humanity where everything is click and collect. Everything is your own, curating your own playlist. You know, where do you get to interact with other people? You know, um, you know, you can't ask somebody on a bus stop now that I missed the bus because you're supposed to have it on your on your on your watch or on your phone or, you know, directly transmitted into your, you know, whatever device it is you're meant to be car- carrying with you. So there's a lot less opportunity to say to somebody, how's it going or start up a conversation because we're all meant to be self-contained and you know we're all meant to be googling everything we need to know instead of asking somebody who might actually know who might have had a lived experience that's going to be much more beneficial than the three or four bullet points that you're going to get and even with me like you know for writing the books they're information dense you know it's really like you know the new book about anxiety that's how to get rid of your anxiety it's not how to live with your anxiety you know, it's, 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 it's not a confessional about me and my anxiety. It's about how to get over it. So again, if, if you know, with, with the gardening and with launching into that, you know, if you, if, if you have a space then, if you have a balcony, you know, grow your own herbal teas, get, it, get an interest in stuff, look up about the different herbal teas, what they can do. And, you know, I don't mean that you have to go off your meds that your doctor has you on, but, you know, you can grow a herbal tea that's a natural shampoo. You can grow a herbal tea that helps whiten your teeth, you know, for your next Instagram post if needs be, you know. Um, and then if you can't do that, there's tons of allotments around the place. There's tons of community gardens. You can go volunteer somewhere and do stuff. You know, people are trying to rewild aspects of their countryside and the city centers to reclaim waste grounds. There's all of these kind of people who go out and do cleanups, you know, at the weekend, go out and pick up all of the rubbish. They're also planting up containers. You know, there's tidy towns. There's all of that. There's a way in, there's, there's a route in to being able to get your gardening time done. Yeah. You don't have to have the acres of land 
to do it. You, you you can do it in very small, minor, minor ways. I mean, there was a time I lived in an apartment and it barely had a window, you know, and I literally had a cup with a cactus in it, you know. That kept me going. That kept me going for the six months I was there till I got somewhere better, you know. Baby, so, just to start off small and baby steps. Baby, baby, baby steps. But, you know, again, it, it is infectious because it is part of who we are as human beings. We may have forgotten that, but, you know, human nature, like the nature is there. You know, does does the desire to be a part of it? I mean, if you look at the big lockdown thing, what did everybody want to do other than banana bread? Sea swimming. You know, we wanted to get back into the ocean, you know, where where we evolved out of. Talk about going back to the womb. Talk about a a, a spiritual metaphor there, you know. So, you know, we, we, we crave nature even if we don't realize it. And even with the gardening thing, so many people come to gardening when they retire. And it's like as if their soul is saying to them, you better get a bit of this before you die. You didn't do it during your teenage years. You didn't have it in your childhood. Yeah. Or maybe you did. Maybe you'd done the, the May altar or maybe you had a little, you know, nature studies in school. But by God, do you need it now? Before you die, get out there, get some gardening in. Or people traveling, you know, doing the Camino, you know, or, you know, wanting to walk across America or, you know, getting out on the bike. You know, it's, you know, the call is there from nature to be of nature. You know, we live on a planet that's living and breathing, you yeah. know, Being like be, be a part of it. Absolutely. And it look like like Ireland is has a lot of nature. Like I told you earlier on, I live in Wexford and I've got the sea swimming and nature and everything. I've got Wicklow on my doorstep. Mm. But like I'm in Cabra today. You're in Crumlin. I've got the, the canal running down here alongside me. I've got the Phoenix Park pretty much, you know. 10 minutes away yeah you're in Cromley you've got the canals as you said you've got that those nature walks like we are lucky especially in Ireland that we do have nature there's a lot of nature around us yeah if you're in the city like you know it's pretty much on your doorstep so get out there and soak up all that beautiful kind of you know sunshine and fresh air and get 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 that kind of get that going do you know what I mean yeah yeah it's just you know make it who you are you know because it's who we were for all of our evolutionary history. Absolutely, absolutely. With well, thank you so much for sharing with me that amazing journey and that amazing toolkit that you have. And, you know, like, it's, it's just fascinating what you're doing and the benefits that, you know, like so many people c- can get from this. And can you tell me that how you mind you? Oh, <laughs> have we got another hour? <laughs> um so for me, okay, so there's two aspects to it. For me, you know, when I'm doing all the horticultural therapy stuff, I'm in a garden, I'm getting all of those benefits. I'm around people, I'm getting all of those benefits. The work that I'm doing, I see it. I see how it changes the demeanor in people, the mindset in people, how it builds skills acquisitions, the happiness and contentment. That I got. So I get the achievement reward from that. So during summertime, Leave me to it. I'm happy out, as they say. I don't need any form of self-care. I'm living it and I'm doing it. Wintertime, because I do have seasonal affective disorder, I do need to be mindful of my vitamin D levels. So the minute the kind of the light levels drop, my serotonin levels drop, and like anybody with SAD, what happens is we can get a little bit more emotional, which can lean into being more sorrowful, which can lean into being demotivated, getting some physical fatigue and the melatonin increase that happens with it again 
that causes you to feel tired a lot of the time and demotivated even more. So before you know it, you can be in a clinical depression. So for me, how I fight that is I take a look from roughly about September on to increase vitamin D rich foods. Now, that can be the fortified milk and the fortified cornflakes. For me, I like to go foraging. So, I, you know, I, I would look for the brown mushrooms. I'm not recommending that to anybody because you need to be an expert in what you're doing. But you can get mushrooms in, you know, your, your health stores that you know are 100% the right thing to take. And the brown skin ones absorb more vitamin D than the white ones. But you can't take the fortified milk. You can't take a supplement. I find that tops me up with enough that doesn't kind of tip me over the edge. And then because it's the dark half of the year and I can be so easily demotivated, that's when I, I kind of go the opposite. I'm a little bit stubborn. I'm like, okay, let's get motivated. And that's where I start on a new book or I, I set out to write the next year's worth of articles. And I give myself kind of a cause to get up out of bed. It's the good fight. You know, I'm going to help somebody through this article and I'm going to help myself in all of the energy that I need to kind of put into it. So because that can be an exhausting process, the first couple of months of it is keeping you going. You know, you're running on adrenaline and whatever else. That's where I do, you know, like the stuff with the new book about being anxiety. There's another book coming out after that that specifically deals with depression and the self-care around that. I would put both into place. And, and a lot of that is just simple things, something like savoring. So if I have a cup of tea, I savor the cup of tea. I wrap my hands around the cup of tea. I feel the warmth of it on my fingers. I smell the aroma of the tea. I sip it. I, I, I mindfully drink it. You know, it's not knocking back the cup of tea or swilling the cup of tea and dipping a chocolate biscuit into it. It becomes a bit of a mindful exercise to have the tea. And even doing that, you know, once a day, that's enough to get you into the now, into this mindful place, into this spiritual place. And I think that that kind of can top you up more than anything else. It's just, it's it's being in your life rather than being in the complications of your life. So wherever you can find joy or love, happiness, activity, pro-social stuff, you know, that's the real self-care. You know, I'm not knocking hot yoga, but it doesn't have to be hot yoga. If it's hot yoga and you have a great laugh after with the people who are there, brilliant. You know, so it's it's whatever is going to motivate you. That's the, that's the true self-care. It doesn't have to be a safari checklist of, you know, doing your Pilates on, on top of Kilimanjaro. You know, it can literally be, you know, hanging out the washing, but listening to the board song, you know, wherever you can get it, get it, you know, be in life, be of life. You know, the, the doing part of it is, is being, you know, so and by being, I mean, being fully present to yourself in life that's you know that's what we're meant to be doing absolutely i love it Fien. i love it man and Fien, again thank you for sharing that with me about how you mind you and where can people find you man? yeah so again, again that's another part of minding yourself um for, for me i mean I, I suppose you can you know i'm at fiend's view on facebook and there's the holisticgardener.com website but you know Really, if, you're, if, if you've been inspired by something I've said here today, the best thing to do is to like come, a, come along to a talk. You know, I'm at Bloom, you know, every year I do all of the kind of health festivals and stuff like that. Or go get a book out of the library. You don't even have to go buy a book. 
And, you know, I always say about the books, you know, the, the thing is get the book, read the book at least once and then put the stuff that's in the book into practice. You know, it's not just stuff that's worked for me personally. I've spent 20 years researching this stuff. It's worked for millions of people. So, you know, there's going to be something in it that's going to work for you. And, and sometimes when people are looking to kind of contact you, well, I, the way I look at that is that that's just putting another step between you and your recovery or you and your getting to live your full potential. You know, you don't need to track down. You don't need to climb the mountain to sit in front of the sensei. You know, you, you know that the meditation works. You can do it at the foot of the mountain. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Fiend, thank you so much for sharing that with me. And again, for being so kind and generous and honest with me about your journey and just telling us about the amazing work that you do and how you kind of self-care and look after yourself. And best of luck with everything that you do in the future, man. I know it's brilliant, Brian. I mean, it's, you know, the podcast is brilliant. I love all your previous guests. I think you're doing great work yourself. So it's, it's really, really nice to be a part of this. Thank you so much for listening to Mind You. And I hope you've learned about the benefits of holistic self-care. Please like, subscribe and follow Mind You podcast wherever you listen to it. And please share it so we can keep the ripple effect of holistic self-care going out to the world. You can find me and mind you at brianbarnswellbeing.com.